So hey, so I'm Pam, aka Pamasaur on Twitter. The Webivore is my blog, so it's dinosaur related. I'm Justin. <laughs> Justin Campbell on Twitter also. I'm Len. I'm Ignu all over the internet. IGNU. I'm Dravon on Twitter. I'm at Dravon. And then our guest today. Uh, and I'm Aditya, I guess in keeping with the um, mythological and or extinct creatures theme, I am Chimera Coder on, on Twitter. So we were talking about uh, earlier, like what, what is a Chimera? A Chimera is, it's a mythical, um, it's a mythical monster that's um, a hybrid. Uh, and so some, so you'll hear the term sometimes used for, um, like in, in biology to refer to people who have, um, two, uh, people have two sets of, um, uh, genes in their body, like two, two different, um, basically they have like, they have the DNA of like two people is the way that you see it portrayed in sci-fi. Um, so Chimera was a, a monster that was like, was a hybrid of two creatures and depending on, um, which version of mythology you subscribe to, it could have been a number of different two creatures that were the hybrid. But, um, the idea is that it's a, it's a combination of multiple things. The name has much less significance than I would like to, um, than I would like to, uh, you know, say it does. It was really just something I chose way back for, um, for something and, kind of stuck it's it's weird it's the longest running username i've had i'm 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 used to cycling through usernames per services and i guess these days you know now that everything has you sign in with twitter or sign in with whatever and they just use your username from the last service it it kind of stuck <laughs> so you're a hybrid coder I, I guess so. I, I, the way that I like to think of it is like I I'm I come from I have I have many different backgrounds. I I bridge things. I bring them together. That's interesting. What are these many things from your background? So uh, a few different ways to look at that. So I mean, these days I um, these days I'm mostly an engineer. At least that's the that's the, the term that commonly gets associated. But uh, I you know my my undergrad degree was actually um, primarily in econ and stats. So I come from a, a background in in statistics and data science, and specifically in um, in an applied sense too, not not just um, not just from a theoretical standpoint. Um, so I've always loved uh, economics, not just the financial side, but also the um, the actual uh, applicative side. Uh, so that can range from everything from you know, behavioral economics, which is the study of why people act the way they do. Um, to uh, you know, other analyses, which you know people might not even actually recognize as as economics, but um, essentially, that why why do people uh, make the choices that they make? And that's a it's a set of um, it, it's a way of thinking that's always that's always fascinated me. And um, my segue back into um, engineering actually came from the fact that. Uh, most of the really interesting questions that you can ask as an economist or as a statistician really are uh, inherently um, engineering problems as well. Um, these days, in order to do anything useful with data, you really need to know how to actually um, interact with it on a programmatic basis. And so that was my um, that was my foray back into um, programming after a, a short, uh, somewhat of a hiatus. This is this is way back, you know, when I was when I was still in school. So you use like big data to solve to answer these questions? Yeah. So um, some of so some of the work that um, is most readily available. I um, I worked at OkCupid. Um, this is now uh, several years ago. This is before the acquisition, um, and I was on the OK Trends team. So OK Trends is the uh, is the blog. People people know it as the the, the OK Cupid blog. Um, the the official name was OK Trends, and we would mine through the user data that we had uh, about people um, about people's dating profiles and the you know the ways that they would interact with each other and um, publish our publish our research on that. And some of it was um, some of it was you know just for fun um, things that uh, things that only people with access to this kind of data would be able to tell you. Um, but so a lot of it was actually um, centered around um, revealing the ways that people are successful or not in online dating and um, was actually very useful for people who are um, who are using the site. Um, there's one blog post uh, titled exactly what to say um, in a first message. And it went through the very the, the various ways that people um, reach out to other you know uh, other users on, on a dating website blindly and uh, what works and what doesn't. So some of the stuff that I did for them um, centered um, actually around some things you were just talking about, like thinking um, why people act the way they do and thinking on an on an aggregate scale, like the way an economist might. 
um, the first, um, the first thing I did was, uh, for a post called, um, the big lies people tell on online dating. And it was getting at how do people actually represent themselves accurately, uh, on a dating profile. Um, and you know, what are the different ways that we might misrepresent ourselves, you know, big or small in order to improve our chances, whether that's you know, using a photo that's a little bit out of date, just because, you know, a couple of years ago, we looked a bit younger or, you know, we haven't put on that weight. Or um, is it giving a, giving um, you know adding adding a couple of inches to our height just to um, you know um, make it make us look a little bit taller? And uh, the one the, the analysis that I spent the most time on was on uh, income because on OkCupid you can actually say how much you earn um, within various brackets. And based on the other information that we had about our users, you know, their, their zip code, their um, zip code, sex, everything, um, and uh, and you know other public data sets, we were able to determine that uh, n- not only that you know a number of users do actually lie about um, the amount that the amount that they make, but they lie in both directions. Like there there are people who will actually um, say that they make more than they do, but there are also people who actually uh, say that they earn less than they do. And there are a number of different reasons that you can speculate as to why that might be. And um, you know, as is often the case, the reality is, is a mixture of the above. But what's, what's even more interesting is we can look at whether or not that's actually successful. And it turns out that that's very dependent on age. Um, lying about how much you make um, when you're younger, uh, when you're one of the younger users on the site, actually it harms you if you if you if you try to say that um, you make more than you do. It harms you in the sense that um, people are less likely to respond to. Um, less likely to respond to your messages when you when you when you send them a message, and and um, you're less likely to receive messages from other people. Um, but then later on in life, it actually it it does uh, work to your advantage again, but only but only to an extent. And uh, you know there aren't very many there aren't very many ways that we can actually quantify and get really hard data about. Um, these decisions that people make, they're, they're very personal decisions. They're very revealing about us. Um, when you look at um, the, the judgments that we might make about other people, um, oftentimes they might not even be conscious. These, these people aren't, you know, they're not necessarily saying like this person is, they say that they make 80K a year. Like, you know, they must be lying. I don't want to message them. Um, it, really, it just all works into um, the fabric of the way that we interpret someone's profile and, and decide whether, whether we're interested or not. And there really aren't very many data sets where um, you can really penetrate someone's um, uh, someone's um, thoughts like that and, and, and see how they're acting without any filter. So I really um, I really enjoyed my time working uh, working at OkCupid. The uh, the other post that um, uh, the the other the other uh, major one that um, I was involved with is actually a, a few were based off of this, but um, it was all the same uh, data set was looking at the ways that people present themselves in their in their profiles. So when you write when you write your when you write your profile at a dating website, you know, you're you're describing yourself. It's it's not only it's your it's your autobiography, it's your it's your ad, it's your you know, it's your it's your personal, it's your ad to the world. And there and and various people are, you know, more or less forthcoming with the things that they say about themselves. And there is no rule book. No one, no one teaches you, you know, this is how you write your resume. Well, this is how you write your online dating profile. There are no rules. And the rules that we infer for ourselves, the rules that we, that we make up, uh, those also, um, those also um, say, say a lot. And we can break those down by various demographics and, um, and, and draw, some, draw some inferences about um, the ways that people behave on an, on an aggregate basis as a result of that. So, um, the first, the first post in the series that we published looked at looked at um, uh, sex and and race. Uh, you know, um, it, it, it looked primarily at race, but it divided up men and women. And it was called "The Real Stuff White People Like." And it was really fascinating to see um, some of the things, you know, some of uh, some of the things that were associated with various uh, with various um, racial groups, or you know, um, what you might associate as just your casual stereotypes. But some of them were actually they they did um, they did take us they did take us by surprise. And it's fascinating, you know, we talk about um, you know to to give this a, a very practical um, uh, tone. 
know, we talk about things like in uh, in the workplaces, you know, with hiring, um, you know, either hiring or promotions. And we talk about things like, um, you know, how do you actually measure something like discrimination or how do you actually determine it? Because it's oftentimes it's made at the margin. You you don't really know in in, in many specific cases, even though it's very, it's possible to to look at a, a broader picture and, and, and determine that something is definitely going on, even if um, on a case-by-case basis, it's, it's, it's difficult to prove. And looking at the ways that people actually present themselves, um, it does confirm some things that we might, uh, we might have guessed, or, and in other cases, we know from empirical evidence, um, about, uh, about behaviors by, you know, based on by race, by sex, by sexual orientation was the, was the next one that we did. And you know, not to not to place too much weight on on a data set that's you know drawn drawn primarily from from a dating website, dating data. But uh, it does dovetail nicely with uh, other research that has been done in other domains, and it is a it is a fairly unique data set. I'm not aware of anyone else who has access to um, uh, a text uh, uh, a body of text this large from this many from that many people um, just purely describing themselves with, uh, you know, with no filter other than that which they want um, their potential partner to, uh, to see. That's really interesting. Were you allowed free reign to just run any query you wanted to? That would be like my dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, I mean, for the most part, we were, I was limited more by our technical capabilities at the time than, than by anything, um, you know, uh, than by anything else. Uh, it was, um, you know, we, we, we obviously we had, you know, policies in place regarding um, accessing, uh, you know, accessing personal information directly. But on, on the aggregate basis, we actually were our biggest constraint when I got there was that we didn't have a data stack. You know, this was this was some years ago now. So um, and, and OkCupid was at the, at the time it had been around for a while. So um, the architecture, you know, the architecture was not out of date by any means. But, um, you know, it, it's not like they were they were starting up in 2009 using at the time the top of the line um, uh, services and practices available and you know we were we were hosted on our own hardware um, you know and something like Amazon Redshift uh, you know Redshift wasn't even out at the time um, and so we had we actually had to deal with the fact that um, you know accessing our data in real time was actually very expensive in fact you know even accessing our, our backlogs at all was very expensive um, both from a computational standpoint and also um, the hit that we would be taking on our actual production um, machines. So when I got there, I started at the same time as um, it, it, the other full-time um, person on the data team. It was it was basically the two of us and the founder, um, two of us and one of the founders, and we had to implement our um, implement our data stack from from the bottom up, or actually, you know, um, piece one together. And that in of itself was a fascinating problem because it was, you know, right around the time when a lot of tools that are, you know, are now common everyday buzzwords were just starting to get, um, just starting to get focus um, and just starting to get attention. Um, so we had access to a lot of tools at our disposal, but uh, we were operating on, in some sense, a, a completely green field with um, the reward, this carrot, you know, the carrot at the end of the day was this, this massive trove of data that we, um, we could basically do whatever we wanted with. And the nice thing about re- doing the research for, um, for OK Trends is that we didn't really have a direct mandate. There was nothing, if, you know, when you, um, if you're doing research in academia, you, you have to satisfy uh, the constraints of, you know, whatever grants you happen to be applying for or you happen to have received. Um, when you're doing it, oftentimes in a corporate setting, you have to do it in order to, um, you know, in order to monetize and, you know, improve, improve the, um, you know, uh, the the click through rates and you know um, basically driving driving advertising your site and you know while OkCupid wasn't as um, advertising funded that wasn't actually the goal of um, of the blog post at all because the blog itself actually if I remember correctly didn't even have any advertising on it it really purely was just to um, get the uh, OkCupid name out there and establish ourselves as uh, a new kind of dating site not a dating site based on um, you know based on this old model of matchmaking that, you know, no disrespect to it has gone back, you know, literally millennia, but is based on actual empirical data uh, that we can use to, to judge each other. Um, another example of a project that we did, this was just before I got there, but I think really encapsulates um, the, the spirit of the site. 
was something called My Best Face. I, I think it's still up if you if you want to take a look. Uh, you could go and import it, it. It hooked from your OkCupid account. You would it would import your photos, and you would basically play. Um, uh, I'm going to say like it's not hot or not. It's like it would it would show you photos of um, 200 pairs of photos of other people, and you would just choose left or right. You know which is which is the person that I prefer to go out with. Um, you know, go on a date with just based on this one photo. And at the same time, you'd have already tagged yourself as you know I um, various things like I am um, you know I'm a punk or I'm vegetarian or I'm you know this. And so at the end. Uh, you know, a couple of days later, I come back and send you an email when other people have done the same thing with your photos and it would tell you, these are the photos that score the best of you. But not just these are the ones that score the best, but these are the ones that score the best with the types of people that you say that you're interested in meeting. Like you're interested in, you know, people with a, um, you know, people with a, a, a corporate vibe or people with a punk vibe. Um, you're interested in, in, in vegetarian people. Like this, these are the photos that are most attractive to them. Or, you know, we had a lot of people who were bisexual on the site. These are the ones that are more attractive to men. These are the ones that are more attractive to women. And that was, was and still even is an, a, a fairly novel concept. Um, most, most people don't think of dating in, in, in that pure of a, a, of a data, data-driven standpoint. And it, it can be very empowering. So I, I kind of want to change topics and ask you about, because I know you were working in Rust recently, and I know sure. that Jervon has an interest in Rust. And so, I do yeah. not. You're what? Thinking of, you're thinking of me. It's just oh. a, but I'm looking at your GitHub, and it's a wall of Go projects. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> I've some are, a lot of Go. fairly popular, too. Yeah, I think um, so. I maintained the um, the the Twitter client library for Go, um, and at least at one point, it was the only client library that worked with um, version one point one, the new the new version of the Twitter API. Um, on top of that, I wrote um, a tool uh, for helping um, helping work with JSON and Go. JSON in any statically typed language is a little bit of a pain, just because you have to define the structure that you want and um, Fortunately, Go lends itself very well to reflection and code generation. So this is a tool that will just generate the the struct that you know you want given a sample, given a um, uh, given a sample. And um, I wrote that. That was one of my. That was probably my actual first public Go project um, uh, over two years ago now. And it's far and away my most popular one. Um, it, a lot of people are um, are very excited about it, um, which which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, I didn't know it existed, I, um, but I already have a couple of projects I could use it on. <laughs> I'm I'm glad to hear that. It that Nancy, this is the this is the main problem is that um I you know there are a number of people who come up to me like at you know at GopherCon last year people came up to me and they're like oh you're the guy who wrote you know go JSON like you know I use that it's amazing and then other people would be like standing nearby and would you know, have no idea what it was and I'd explain it to them and it's like you know how did I not know about this why didn't I know this existed and that's the, that's the one thing that um, is I think still the unsolved problem is just the discoverability of the of the tooling out there the go go as a language has a great has a great ecosystem and has wonderful tooling um, but just merging those a, a little bit is is I think the next step so that people can can really um, be aware of just how much there is out there but yeah, it's um you know I've I've been dabbling in Rust just like literally the last um, couple of weeks though I'm primarily a Go programmer these days. Um, I started writing Go uh, basically just after um, the uh, the first stable release came out. So um, uh, and, and not just writing it, but writing it as my primary language um, for my professionally for my day job. Uh, so I have the distinction of being able to say that I have almost three years of experience at this point of writing Go full time. Um, and, and being paid to do so, which I, I don't think many people outside Google can, can really say. Um, and it's a, it's a great language. Do you, I, get, I really do you ever get recruiters asking for 15 years of Go experience? <laughs> yeah, I should, I should refer them to, um, I should refer them to Rob Pike and, and he'll give them a nice like, witty response about, you know, sorry, I don't, I don't have 15 years of Go experience. <laughs> Um, I, I do get, I do get some recruiter emails asking about Go though. Fortunately, um, fortunately Go has, uh, not yet reached that point the way that, you know, Ruby and, and Rails was, um, you know, like three to five years ago. There are a lot of companies that are, that are using it and there are a lot of jobs out there for Go if that's what you want to do. Um, but it's not, it's not yet at the point where it's, it's truly a buzzword. 
Um, it'll, it, it'll happen someday. I mean, it, it happens to all languages that, that are good and, and, and gain in popularity, but it, it certainly will be a sad day when that happens. And I have to start actually filtering recruiter emails with the phrase go in it. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to go so early? Uh, <laughs> well, so I was working on a project, um, that had a, a strict deadline and uh, it was not a deadline that I could change. It, it was around the um, the presidential debates, actually. So you know, those really were not getting those were not getting moved, no matter whether whether we made the deadline or not. And um, I the project in it, we were writing it in Python at the time because um, a couple of other people that I was working with they um, that was that was the common denominator, and I was responsible basically for the entire backend. And I was using Tornado and it just became this gigantic mess. And I mean, I'm, I, at the time I was a Python, uh, um, a Python dev and, um, you know, so I had a lot of Python experience and Tornado just seemed like the worst. It it seemed like combining Python and Node.js, but getting the worst of both worlds. Um, (laughs) You know, very, this very, you you get the event loop in this very callback-based, callback-driven model. um, But in Python, which is not really meant to be used that way, and, you know, Python... You can you can write functional Python, but it's really not designed for that. You know, Guido himself has said that he he really wants to he really wish he could remove the functional constructs in Python rather than extend them. So you're you're really getting the you're really getting the worst of both worlds. At least I felt like, and um, we got to the point where I was just banging my head um, trying to string things together and make it work. Um, at the same time, at a, at a hackathon the previous weekend, um, a friend of mine who, um, actually he was, uh, also a, um, an alum of the, of the recurse center, just like, um, you know, uh, uh, which is how, you know, Pam and I, uh, first connected. Um, he, he mentioned at a hackathon that he, you know, he was working with Go and he, you know, just gave me the, like the two minute spiel on it. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that sounds kind of cool. So one night, I um, after about two weeks of dealing with Tornado, I went home and <laughs> I rewrote the entire Python code base that we had in in Go. And it was the first Go I'd ever written. I didn't even really uh, go through their Hello World or anything. I just I just dove right in. And I sh- in retrospect, I should have done the tour, but it it worked out fine. And within two nights, not like not even during the day, just two nights, I had already written more of the code base in Go than I had in Python and was more more confident in um in the reliability of that code. And that's when I realized like this is this is a language onto something. And it was it's weird because I still feel this way. There's there's nothing about the language that the language itself that I have to say I particularly love. It's not that there's that one construct or that one feature, that one thing that that just really makes it. But it's the tooling and the way that it all fits together. And I think the best way to describe it is that Go as a language is not created by a bunch of people who like thinking about programming languages and, you know, speculating about um, different ways to structure languages and all the different things that those can do and, and, and doing, you know, PLT research. And, you know, that's fun. I, I, I love PLT. I, you know, I, I wrote a lot of Lisp in school and, and, and loved it. But uh, PLT is you know, what? Oh, sorry, um, like programming languages and translators, just like the theory behind um, the theory behind writing compilers and 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 interpreters. Yeah, I thought it was and, for programming language theory. A programming, sorry, yeah, programming language theory. Um, PLT, programming languages and translators, was a class at uh, at Columbia about about programming language theory. So um, uh, that's where I, I guess I um, switched those in my mind. But yeah, so it's it's not written. Go is Go is not created by people who who want to be thinking about all these things, which is which is really fun to do, but it creates a certain type of language. Go is created by people who just, they're systems programmers who want to get things done. And they were frustrated by various things that were preventing them from getting things done, um, particularly in, in C, which is a great language. We still use it, but, you know, it's... <laughs> It's several decades old by this point, and, and we need a version of C for the 21st century. And so they got together, and um, you know, literally, um, Ken Thompson, one of the one of the original authors of C, the language, is um, is one of the um, the authors of Go, the language. And you know, you've got 40 years worth of experience on what worked and what didn't in C. You can you can do a, an amazing job the second time around. And that's what that's what's uh, kept me with it. It's not that I love. It's not that I even love programming in Go so much as I love the fact that I can be so much more productive in Go than I ever could be in any other language and ever have been. And that's coming from someone who's tried every language under the sun. I mean, you name a language and I've, I've, 
I've at least, you know, tried, done a Hello World or tried a tutorial at some point. Nim. So it took you less than a night to figure out the Go path? Yeah, I mean, it really, it, to figure out, did you say the, the Go path? That like, yeah. <laughs> that's a good pun. I appreciate that. Yeah, the Go path, I actually struggled with that for a while. I resisted it. And um, it's one of those things that when I teach workshops now about Go, I, I'm glad I resisted it so I can tell people, you know, learn from my mistake. Don't resist the Go path. Just, just use it and it'll make your life easy. Um, yeah, it, it really helped that um, uh, learning Go, it really helped having such a such a well um, integrated uh, tool chain and such a strict one. And the Go compiler literally will not let you will not let you compile a program that has so much as a single import that isn't used in your file or has a variable that you assign to but never actually access later on. And that's not a warning. That's not like you know GCC you know dash w wall. Um, it's it's an actual error. You will it will not build anything. And it's frustrating at first, um, especially coming from Python, where you're used to just typing things at the sh at, in, uh, in the interactive shell and you know getting them working. But it really helps as you develop a code base um, over a longer period of time, and it really helps with maintainability. My aha moment with Go, um, you know, that I I started to appreciate it right away, but it really came about two or three months later when um, I had this code base that I'd been doing for work and it was just me working on it. Uh, and I had about 5,000 lines of Go in a single in a single project, in a single package, actually. And I, I shudder just like, just thinking about this at the time, but it was, you know, it represented about two or three months worth of work and also me learning the language and getting accustomed to it over the course of that time. So the, the code was written at all varying levels of skill and familiarity with the language. And I had to refactor that into um, basically five different um, modules, um, you know, five different packages be, um, and, and just separate it out. And, you know, about 5,000 lines of really spaghetti code with no tests, um, you know, I can't imagine how long that would have taken me in Python. Like I've, I've, I ask this question anytime I, um, I do a workshop on Go, you know, I, I ask people like based on your, on your favorite language, you know, how long do you think this would take? And I get answers anything from like, you know, a couple of weeks to, you know, a few months. And uh, in, in this particular case, it took me all of 25 minutes. I kid you not. All I did was I put, I, I put the things in the files where I, where I knew I wanted them in the end and just kept running the compiler over and over and over again until it didn't give me any more errors. And the fact that it's so, the fact that the compiler is so strict, it means that you don't have these issues of, you know, in a, in a large Python program, you don't even know whether you can delete an import sometimes because you don't know whether something's using it later down. You can search for the identifier, but, you know, if they import it as, um, you know, with, a, with an asterisk, you know, God help you. Or if they rename the import and give it another alias, you know, you don't know what you could be, you could be messing up. Up. Whereas with Go, because it forces you into this very rigid box from the very beginning, it limits the amount of damage that you can do as a as a developer. And um, it's it's frustrating at first, but that was the moment where I realized that I was hooked. Saying that this is something that I I might have abandoned that project, um, you know, if uh, if if it had been in other language, just as, you know, this is going to be this is going to be too much to do, or I might have just rewritten it from scratch. But 25 minutes, you know, I was done. I can I, I can go to lunch. <laughs> What is your editor of choice when writing Go? Uh, I use Vim. Uh, that's not a Go thing. That's um, so. As I mentioned, I'm I'm a polyglot at heart. Not not so much these days. Um, really, Go Go is kind of the panacea to that. Um, I used to dabble in languages all the time, and in fact, I almost didn't try out Go because I I told myself, you know, I just need to like buckle down and really. Um, you know, and really focus on a single language and just getting things done in that language um, rather than exploring everything under the sun. And I'm, I'm glad I made that one exception. Um, so the nice thing about Vim is that it's, it's everywhere. If not Vim, then VI. Um, it's on any machine that I ever want to access, you know, whether that's my own personal computer, you know, my friend, someone that I'm pairing with, or, you know, uh, an AWS machine that I just happened to have spun up from, from scratch. And I can use it on, I can use it with absolutely any language. Um, whereas, you know, um, I think that's one of the, one of the reasons that I really dislike, um, you know, Java. I mean, there are a number of reasons that people dislike Java, but um, having to use an IDE just feels very, uh, I feel very locked in and I feel like um, I'm, I'm dependent on some tooling that I may not, uh, that I may not have access to. I also don't really like to configure Vim very much. I, I have very minimal, my VimRC is like 15 lines. 
Um, and it's nice because that way, when I when I go to, on a remote machine, I don't have to adjust to you know not having my full tool set available to me. Um, that's it's a little bit of an extreme position, kind of outdated these days, as I'm I'm usually working on my own computer and usually only in Go, but. Um, Go, since most of the tool chain exists at the command line anyway, you don't really need an IDE. Um, there are a couple of plugins for various IDEs for Go, but most Go developers I, I know just use um, a basic text editor. I just like in Vim, I have it set up to automatically format. Um, so you can, you can ro- uh, run Go thumped oh, yeah. when you save a file. Um, but you can also run it through Go Imports, which will actually do your imports for you. Like if you delete like your last usage yeah. of an import, it will remove the package. And if you make a new one, it will try to add it to your imports for you. Yeah, I find that really helpful. Go, Go Imports is great. I love it. Um, Go Format, though, uh, I mean, because Go, Go Imports is technically uh, you know, not part of the, the, um, the official Go tool chain, even though um, it was written by one of the developers. Um, Go format has to be my favorite favorite thing about the actual official Go distribution. Um, it's funny because I came to Go because of the concurrency. You know, that's why we're using uh, Tornado. Um, I came to Go thinking that this is what I'm going to get out of the languages. I'm going to be able to write really fast, really parallel programs. And I mean, sometimes I do, but that's really not why. I, that's really not why I stick with it. Go format. It's so helpful that I can read any Go code on the internet, and because everyone uses Go format. Everyone has the same style. It removes so much bike shedding, you know. I don't have to argue about, you know, is it two spaces versus four for a tab? Is, you know, should I use a semicolon or should I not? No, everyone has the exact same uh, coding style. And it just makes it so easy to to take any code that someone has thrown up there, whether it, whether it works or not, and just get it into working format. Um, that's Again, that's just what I love about the language. It's, it's not not the language itself, but it, it just gets out of my way. It lets me, it lets me get from, it lets me get to point B faster, uh, you know, ignoring how I actually go from point A to point B. Right. So uh, how do you like Rust coming from Go? It's a very different language. I mean, a lot of, so I'll preface this by saying that a lot of people compare Go to Rust. And I, I think I can see why they made the comparison, but I don't think it's a very good one. You know, it's tempting to say like, you know, one's Google, one's, you know, one's Mozilla. You know, they're both <laughs> languages that are like trying to replace these old systems languages that we have from back in the day. You know, they're competing, you know, Rust versus Go. And I, you know, it's, I don't think anyone who actually uses either one to, on a daily basis seriously thinks that either one is either a threat or even a competitor to the other because mm-hmm. they fit in vastly different use cases. Um, Go is meant to replace um, it's it's also meant to replace some of the things that replace C in like for example Python like you know or Java um, you know Java and Python both came around. Does question on, does does Go compile to C? Uh, no, Go uh, Go compiles to native code. Um, Meaning assembly? Uh, yes, yeah. Go supports I think twelve different architectures at this point. Um, there are two different. Does that compilers mean? Do you that, like so yeah. if because because here's my line of thought: if Go is meant to replace C. Like or like that's like the dream. Then yeah. does that mean Go could be the basis of future programming languages? Because oh, we absolutely. have so many C-based programming. Like, like I'm I'm saying like what's like what does Node for Go look like? You know, um, like you could definitely like write building... like a JavaScript interpreter in Go. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I like because Node compiles to C, right? Does it? Well, Node's written really... C. I think. Well, Node's well, like it's running on the JavaScript JVM, which compile, which is like C, right? So do you get where I'm going here? Kind of. I mean, I I actually don't know much about how Node is interp- or how Node um, is uh, is implemented. Um, I will say that so absolutely Go could be the basis of uh, future programming languages. I mean, they they we can start with Go itself. They actually just um, about a month or two ago finished um, the rewrite of the um, GC Go compiler from C to Go. So now Go, uh, one of the two Go compilers uh, is itself written entirely in Go, including the standard library, um, which is great. I mean, it's, it's great from a number of perspectives, but primarily it makes it so much easier for people to contribute because there are a lot more people who can, a lot more Go programmers who can program Go than who can program C. And even the ones who, uh, who can do both, I mean, you know, that's why Ken Thompson and Rob Pike wrote the, the language to begin with, is they didn't want to write C. Um, interestingly, I will, I will point out that um, a lot of uh, former or even current Node programmers are um, dabbling with or have even made the switch to Go, including... Um, Re- relatively recently, the the original creator of Node, um, he uh, he's now writing in Go these days, and in fact, um, seems to be working on a, um, a project to implement um, 
V8, or sorry, to basically to allow um, allow you to tie V8 into uh, into a Go program, so that you can call so you can call JavaScript from uh, presumably so you can call JavaScript from within a Go program and, and use existing um, JavaScript tools uh, without having to without having to rewrite them. Um, I, I I tried at one point um, to do a basic JavaScript parser um, in Go and. It was it was very difficult. If I mean, really, just for the reason that parsing JavaScript in any language that is not JavaScript is an, is very difficult. Um, you know, there there's a reason there are so few implementations of JavaScript out there, and because it's a very complex language. Um, but I do think that um, I do think that Go is very likely to be the um, used for the implementation of new programming languages. Um, you know, uh, over the next several years, because it's just much easier to write Go than it is C. And Go has very good interop with C. You know, we have C Go, so you can actually call Go from within C programs or from within C libraries and, and vice versa. So if you really do need to drop down to C for, for whatever reason, you have that interoperability, but you can still get the benefits of just a very nice, clean syntax and, and uh, you know, not having to worry about memory management and all of that stuff. So, um, so yeah, to answer your, uh, to get back to the question about, um, about Rust, uh, it's a very, uh, it, I haven't written, like, I haven't written very much C++, certainly not recently, so, and nothing very large. So, um, because Rust is trying to replace C++, it's hard for me to judge. Um, it's definitely a much more complex language than I'm used to. Uh, and that's, I think, because it has to do so a, a very complex thing. The memory management, I'm not sure that I, I, I can really um, you know, say I, I truly understand it yet. Um, but it is, it's very clear that it's something very impressive that they've managed to do. Um, the memory management is, the model is very superb. And the fact that they've basically managed to um, all but eliminate um, most of the issues that arise from unsafe C and C++ code is, it's a truly remarkable feat. I find it um, I find it more difficult to write in than than Go, um, be, you know, partly because I've been writing Go for three years now, but also because you know it is just an, uh, a more complex language. But it I'm not for the things that for the things that it, Rust is intended to be used for. I'm not sure if there's really another language that um, you really would want to use anyway. Like it, it really seems like C plus plus would be your only choice. And between the two, I, I would choose Rust any day, even though I I know very you know I know very little Rust at this point. I'm still a beginner, but um. The nice thing about Rust is that the the Rust community has also been, uh, from what I've seen, very very welcoming and very helpful. Um, you know, my first real foray into Rust, um, and this is just last week, was um, to contribute to the Servo project, which is um, uh, a rendering engine that um, that Mozilla is writing that you know could eventually replace Gecko one day inside Firefox, and. That you know, and that's actually not an uncommon experience from what I, uh, for I can see that a lot of people um, who get their very first taste of Rust by contributing to the Servo project, and that's a that's a sign of a really strong uh, community to me. I mean, it's just it's just one tiny thing, but um, there aren't many language communities that are that welcoming to beginners and that accessible, and have a have a such a large project that that is that accessible. Um, which I, I think is great. Um, I really hope that continues. And I don't know if I have much of a use case for Rust um, in, my, in my daily work, but you know, who knows, maybe that'll change. It's, it seems to be a, a great language. What are some, so you, you learn Go pretty fast. What are some obstacles you ran in learning Rust? Or was it smooth, but you just haven't spent a lot of time on it? So um, Rust, the memory model is an issue. So Rust, again, it's also not, you know, the beta just came out last week. So technically, it's still not even a stable language yet. Um, so it's, this would be like learning Go, you know, um, at the beginning, you know, in 2011 or at the beginning of 2012. Um, and so one big obstacle is just the fact that it's a, it's a very move, rapidly moving target. Like if you wanted to write, um, you know, a Rust program six or eight months ago, you know, two, two or three weeks later, it might not even compile anymore just because the language itself has changed. And it's not that it's that hard to fix, but um, you have to be on top of that. And there's just not as much, um, you know, there's not as much documentation or not as many resources and books and blog posts, et cetera, out there um, regarding Rust, or at least up to date, uh, as there are, you know, with, with a language that has actually been officially released yet. Uh, so that's a huge, that is itself a huge obstacle. Um, but, you know, that's one that I see fixing itself very soon. The memory management is is definitely going to be a big hurdle for a lot of people because unless you're coming from C and C++, there's really no other language that you'd be you'd be using these days where you actually have to think about memory 
um, on a daily basis, as opposed to you have to think about it just in order to optimize your program. Um, and, you know, certainly coming from Go and Python, I'm not really used to thinking about um, allocation so much, uh, you know, every time I, I um, you know, I, I so much as define a variable. And Rust has a few different layers of its memory model that you need to be aware of. And because there's no garbage collection whatsoever, but it still manages to be memory safe, which, um, is, you know, it's the only language that I'm aware of. There's, there's probably some are out there, but it's the only one that, that's uh, gained traction I'm aware of that has no garbage collection and yet is, is memory safe. Um, it has to, it just ha it's, it's just a more complex system. And it's not as documented, or at least not, not in a completely, you know, beginner friendly way yet. As, as I think it will be six months or you know 12 months from now so if you're if you're looking at getting into rust um, you know that's probably what you you know set aside some time to actually just like really dig in in the chapter on 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 pointers and boxes and and really understand them uh, that, that's gonna time yeah exactly um, that's going to take some time for for to really um, wrap your head around unless you're coming directly from C++ in which case it, it probably you know you probably have to implement it yourself every day. <laughs> So that's that's what I know about Rust, but it's a great language. I I really hope it I really hope it takes off. So aside from uh, Rust and like using Go for day to day stuff to get stuff done, like what languages do you find the most interesting or do you enjoy the most? Maybe not the most productive in, but so uh, I have a I have a you know special place in my heart for um, for Python because it was the first language that I ever really felt truly productive in, um, as opposed to just being able to get by. Uh, and it is really nice. The, the reason that I ended up, uh, Go ended up winning out at least for most of, um, for most of what I do, uh, but still not all is just that Go ends up being more maintainable in the long run. I can come back to a Go program, uh, six months after, you know, after six months of not looking at it and be more confident that I understand it and that I can, uh, that it still works and I can get it into a working state. Um, than with Python. Also, the the deploying deploying Go is so much simpler than Python, just because it's all a static. It's a single static binary. Um, from a deployment standpoint, that it, it's a huge um, it's a huge market favor. But but I still do really love Python. And for data science, data analysis, you know, Go you can do a lot of statistical work in Go. Um, I've given some some talks on on what is and is not yet possible in in Go from a stat from a stat standpoint. But you know, Python still has great bindings for a lot of numerical libraries that aren't available in in Go yet. Um, mostly because uh, Go still doesn't, uh, at least to my knowledge, have uh, bindings to Fortran, and a lot of a lot of scientific libraries, believe it or not, are still are still written in Fortran, um, or at least they were written in Fortran, and they're still the ones that people use. So um, Python is Python's probably what I um, you know I would use second most, and I really do still love the list family. I, I actually am a functional programmer at heart. And it's weird to say that because neither Go nor Python is really functional at all. Uh, Go doesn't even have, um, you know, a map or reduce function. But I really do love functional programming. Like it's, um, it's not something that, you know, even after doing it for years and in many different languages, you know, um, you know various lists, Haskell, Scala, um, I never really ended up still being quite as productive as I as I can be in 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 certainly in Go and maybe even Python, but it's just it's fun. It really is fun. Um, my favorite list is Racket, um, which is it's a scheme variant. It's not technically a scheme, but it it, it might as well be. And uh, the the tagline on their website, at least it used to be, um, was uh, batteries included. And Racket has everything that you could want in a list. It's it's a really beautiful language. Um, the thing that was missing at the time uh, was the tooling around the language was not, um, it wasn't bad. It was, it was certainly better than any other list that I've, that I've used, um, but not as well integrated as, um, you know, as uh, Go or even Python was. Um, I think that might have changed, but uh, it's why I don't use it these days, except for, you know, when I just want to set aside a weekend and, and do some stuff for fun and not really worry about what I end up with at the end, at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think I guess those would be my languages in that order: Go, Python, Go, Python, and Racket. <laughs> nice. I haven't looked at Racket. I'm, I might try that out. Yeah. Have you Have you used any Lisp before? Um. Yeah, I've played with Closure quite a bit, and um, okay. 
I've, I've dabbled in like some other ones, but I, I've I've seen uh, Racket pop up on like Lobsters and, and Reddit quite a bit recently. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious to take a look at it. People seem to really like it. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Closure is actually the one list that I. It's it's so funny. It's the it's probably the most commonly used these days, and it's um it's the one that I really don't have any experience in at all. Um, I uh, you know if I end up, if I ever end up a you know a job where we ha- we're on the JVM again, um, other than Foursquare, we use Scala. Um, I might you know push try and push people towards towards Closure so you can use something functional. Um, it's a uh, racket is, is beautiful. It just has, it has so many libraries that um, other lists don't, you know, common list, you know, I wrote a lot of common lists and it's just so frustrating that, you know, have to sit there and figure out which JSON library I'm going to use because, you know, there are five different ones and, you know, they all have their own different quirks and whatever. And it's just you know, racket. You've got, you've got its batteries included right there. Just like, just like Python. So you said how, what, what, um, Maybe you write a lot of lists in school. Was your courses, were your courses focused more on list no. languages or were you just naturally? Yeah, I actually, um, I'm trying to think if any of my classes uh, required us um, to use lists. I don't think so in school. It, it, it definitely was just, I, I started learning it because, um, you know, I had been told that it was uh, a good thing to do as a, as a CS student. And, um, you know, I, uh, Land of Lists would be, um, uh, it, that was the book that I started off with, and it's it's a great book. Um, they actually the same author um, has a book out in Racket called Realm of Racket, which I have though it's you know a little bit um, you know. Can I can I well little... actually you? Oh yeah. Since we're since we're not at. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sweet. So, um, so Realm of Racket is not by the author of Land of Lisp. Oh really? So just I to give them due credit. Um, oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, well, thanks. He's, he's thank one of that. the authors. Yeah, he's one of the authors because it's inspired by him. Um, but uh, I only know it because I literally just opened Realm of Racket. <laughs> okay. Because I, I have a digital copy somewhere in one of like the dev libraries I have. Um, and like I was like scanning the introduction and it was like, da 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 in the style of Conrad's <laughs> Realm of Racket, which like means that it, he's not first author. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is he. Um... Is he listed? I as wonder if he author? he is listed as the author because I, I thought he wasn't at all, and then I I scrolled up and he's on there. Um, but I don't know, maybe he did the cartoons or something. Um, yeah, because like the, the style is the same. He, I the, guess he, he's he's given second billing as he's listed as the second author. That, yeah, he's not first author. Okay, so so yeah, thank thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, um, David Van Horn and Conrad Barsky. So yeah, Conrad Barsky wrote um, Land of List, and that's what I used. To he get was started. a medical doctor. How yeah. cool is that? <laughs> It's, like, it's awesome. <laughs> I, I love I lo- my my dad's a physician. I love the idea of just you know someone who's like operating on patients during the day and comes home and you know writes ass expressions at night for fun. Well, I I um, didn't notice until my my husband saw it and was like, "Why are you reading a programming book by a medical doctor?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> good point." <laughs> have you have you seen the music video? Oh my gosh, it's really catchy. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's disturbingly catchy. Like, now I'm just going to be stuck in my head. Can that be, like, the musical interlude? I feel like we need a musical interlude here, you know, like the way NPR does. Oh, I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Len, Len listens to a lot of NPR podcasts, and so every so often he wants to get NPR-y up in here. Yeah, I, 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 I think I would support that if, we, if, if the musical interlude is the, uh, the Land of List song. It's just like, you know, God, yeah. Maybe, just, maybe the closing. Maybe, like, we put it, like, a little, <laughs> just like, you know, fair use 10 seconds at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Realm of Racket. I haven't read it, but it's in the style of of Land of Lisp, which I used. And you learn Lisp while writing games. You know, what more could you want? Um, so, was, oh yeah. So the question was, um, yeah, you know, was it? How did I get started Lisp? Yeah, no. It was just. It was. Um, someone told me it was a thing to do, and I, I picked up the book, and it was a great place to get started. Um, not. Uh, not necessarily, closure side, not necessarily the best way to get hired, though um, I can officially say that um, Lisp, being a Lisp programmer, has, uh, I have profited off of it. I won uh, ex- in the form of exactly one Xbox that I won at a hackathon, specifically because um, the thing that I wrote was in Lisp. There was a prize for um, if anyone wrote something in Erlang. And no one wrote anything in Erlang, um, <laughs> but I wrote something in Lisp. And so they called it, they, they changed the name to the Not Quite Erlang Prize. And um, 
So now I have an Xbox uh, sitting in my living room, courtesy of uh, MangaDB, who, who sponsored the prize. So being a Lisp programmer, it may not, I, I won't promise you it'll pay much, but it, it can pay at least something. <laughs> what hackathon was this? This was for, um, for Hack and Why. It's a student hackathon in New York. Um, uh, I'm, I, was a, I was a fellow actually in the Hack and Why um, program. They do a summer fellowship, uh, and, um, but they also do two hackathons a year for students. Um, anyone who's a full-time student is invited, um, not uh, undergrad and graduate. Um, and um, it's a great time. It's, um, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, hackathons around. So what, uh, I'm actually curious, what languages, I know Pam uh, is a JavaScript pro. Uh, I'm curious what, what languages the, the rest of you um, find yourself gravitating towards. I've been playing a lot with Clojure lately. I have a mm-hmm. love-hate relationship with Clojure. Uh, so I get Lisp, but I feel like the Clojure ecosystem is, is difficult to get into, or just, like, if I want to do something, it's like, oh, well, there's no real documented way, or advised way to do something yeah be a trailblazer that almost i mean (laughs) yeah i feel like i feel like i might know what you're about to say i'd be curious if if you were thinking something completely different but i'm having not yet done closure i did i tried the well that's not true i tried the closure cohen's and they they just i was like this is like makes no sense to me um i do not get this at all like i could like i you could like say like you know, you could be like palm, and I would say palm, and I would not understand that it meant apple. Um, like that's what it felt like doing the closure Cohen's. But after reading Land of Lisp, I feel like now I have a better grounding in in Lisp as a like and as a family of languages. So I, it's almost like as I, I feel like marginally prepared to look at any Lisp and kind of understand what's going on. Um, like I look at any like object oriented programming language and I kind of know what's going on. Like the syntax doesn't matter that much. Um, but I, but one of the things that at least like Land of Lifts kind of like communicated was like, par, like it's part of the design of the language is that it's not like, it doesn't have structures that are specifically oriented for specific problems. It's very composable and you can make custom things to solve your problem in a very concise way. Meaning that they're like, because everything's so general, it's not like the, there's a like, this is how to solve your exact problem library. Yeah, yeah. So that's I, I feel like agree. that's that's Lisp in general, and that's like if you want to build something, you can easily build it. But I guess what I'm saying is, oh, I want to build a web app. What are the tools that I should use? That you know, I don't want to spend like half a day figuring out. That's the thing. Like, is what like, I should but that's do. the thing. Is like when you because I think say a web app like is a like really common problem domain, and so really kind of the answer would be like a Lisp answer. I, I was going to say something different, but then now I thought of this, is that a Lisp answer would be you need a domain-specific language. Um, so, like, you could have, like, a, you know, a, a Lisp that is good for web apps. Like, that, like, in other, like, for example, in in certain languages, it's just very easy to create an HTTP server. And, I mean, it's also pretty trivial in Lisp um, from the part that I glazed over that did that. But, um <laughs> But, but like one of the things like, we're, we, I mean, we get really lazy, like we're, it is for in node, it is so easy to make a web server, but then we still use express so that we can literally just say express. <laughs> and then we have a web server with a lot of basic defaults that are just like, okay, like this is like, unless I tell you otherwise, this is how I want it to work. Um, and I, and I think for p- common problem domains, like web applications, we want that kind of laziness, which I, and I, you know, I could say it makes sense. I could see why people be like, like you should do everything the hard way, but like, I think it's okay to, to use things. And I mean, maybe, maybe what happens in Lisp is people tend to make those things and then not share them. Maybe that's the problem. Um, almost like I, well, there's like the closure, there's, isn't there a closure cookbook? Yeah, the like, I mean, oh, there, like a Python there are cookbook. tools like there. There's the Clojure routing library and the Clojure uh, web framework, similar to Sinatra. Well, I, I will say yeah. like, one of the great things about Go, like, um, doesn't have um, like version packages like Ruby Gems or Python eggs, or whatever they're called. Um, so whenever you push code to GitHub or Bitbucket, 
Um, so so anyway, Python, they're called libraries because they don't have to be called a silly name. <laughs> but I, 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 I thought really there were eggs. I thought they do. They, they do. They, they do have, have an ending dot egg, but no one call them like I don't. Do people call them eggs? I've never heard people call them eggs. So we have a Django another language. Call them a library. Another language, uh, Chicken Scheme, has packages which are eggs, and then you manage them with Salmonella. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you ser- are you serious? I am very serious. Because that could be a thing. Yes, it is. We're gonna, there's a group of us that are going to write schemes next week. Um, but no, so so you push your code to GitHub, and, and there's literally like no work of like, like coming from Ruby, right? Like you make a Ruby gem, you need to uh, make a gem spec, you need to publish it to Ruby gems, you need to version it. Um, but just pushing your code up to GitHub uh, as a Go project, anybody else can refer to that by the GitHub URL and import it and use your code, assuming that your code is like namespace properly. But like, I thought Go, so yeah. I thought Go is starting to do a package manager now. No, it's it's putting convention around what you should do to manage packages. Okay, so they're still gonna which which is which thing. is which is essentially vendor it like copy okay. all of your dependencies into your directory, but in a in a tool driven way. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the, the the three of us uh, actually. Well, I guess Pam too. You use Ruby at work, right? <laughs> I, I think we're we're primarily Rubyists, um, but we have other side things like Len. Len, you mostly like JavaScript, right? Well, because I write Rails, that means I write JavaScript all day. <laughs> you write front end Rails. Yeah, I'm like ninety percent JavaScript at this point. Um, JavaScript is the one language I, I I'm still trying to like I'm still trying to get comfortable in the point where I feel like I like I really have a handle on it. It's funny. It's uh, of all the languages I've tried, it's the one that's like still kind of elusive for me. Have you read JavaScript the Good Parts? I have read JavaScript the Good Parts. It's it's not actually the la- like the language because JavaScript the Good Parts I think is um uh especially if you already have a background in functional programming like especially if you're coming from a list um you know a lot of it you know it's it, it it's good to read but it's not um particularly uh surprising um it's more around it's more getting a handle on you know the workflow and like what are the various like different libraries out there and like what you know what are the various frameworks because there's so many and there's like, <laughs> And this is the problem with Lisp too, by the way, is that um, I think it's not even so much that people don't write their own things and share them. It's that everyone writes their own things and then shares them. So in like Lisp, you don't have just one, you, know, you don't just have one JSON library in common Lisp. You have like 10 different JSON parsers in common Lisp. And you know, JavaScript, I think, is the same way. Like you have, so there's a redundancy and an abundance of all the different options out there. And, uh, you know, I think people who write JavaScript on a daily basis have um, have their way of like, you know, wading through all of that. And, um, you know, a, a lot of different coding styles as well, too. Um, right. People come from javascript from all sorts of different server-side languages so people come with their you know conventions and styles yeah and javascript i think in this way javascript and lisp have a lot in common you know they're both languages that um evolved in a very peculiar way you know javascript was in some sense you know was inspired by lisp in in some ways and they both had in not, like both languages, you know, they don't enforce really anything as far as style or convention on you. They they give you a lot of leeway and a lot of flexibility, which allows you to do a lot of really powerful things in both languages. But it also means that you know you have more than enough rope to you know hang yourself with or to shoot. You can you can shoot yourself in the foot very easily if you um, if you want to or if you don't. And um, it's it takes a lot of uh, it takes experience or care not to do so. And I figured that out in list, and I'm still working on JavaScript. I'm working on um, a, uh, someone recommended uh, You Don't Know JS recently. I don't know if anyone has read it, but they said that it was sort of like the... That might uh, have been me. Might have I, been just, you. I, link, I link to Kyle Simpson a lot. Yeah. It might, it might have been very you, good. He's very good. Yeah. And that he's highly was, yeah. opinionated, which that I appreciate. Like, I think people appreciate in JavaScript. Like, we need, some, we need like, super opinionated people. And Kyle is very opinionated. O'Reilly was giving away that book for free the other day. I mean, it's like Kyle gives away the but... book. I mean, the book is free on GitHub. Uh, they were giving <laughs> it away was, the EPUB. It was, it was, it was kickstarted, and then you can buy it from O'Reilly if you want to buy books. I've got to say, I like O'Reilly that way. They've been they're pretty good as far as their digital um, offerings go. You know, for uh, as far as publishers, they're um, they're one of the better ones out there like that. Uh, yeah, I've been working. I think you were the one who recommended that to me, and it's uh, it's good. It's kind of like it's almost like, you know, JavaScript, the bad parts, but like, 
you know, but it's okay. Like, you know, here's how to navigate the bad parts or here's how to navigate some of the messiness. And um, it, I appreciate, you know, it, it makes me feel a lot more comfortable knowing it's like, okay, these are the things that I should, you know, avoid or take care in doing and that kind of stuff. And, um, and I, and I, I agree. I, I like having, I like being opinionated a lot about languages, not just myself, but I like the fact that, th- that people get opinionated about them because it, um, you know, it, it forces a certain the sense of uh, uniformity when with coding practices and styles, and it just makes it so much easier to um, to to get things done. Uh, and that was the, that's the one thing that is, is great about Lisp, but I also don't really miss on a day to day basis. Is just that everything can be done a thousand different ways, and you can look at you know that you can have some you can have an entire application that might be a hundred lines of Go that's like three lines of Lisp, and but it takes you like you know five times as long to understand what it's actually doing because this person is using the language in some really weird twisted way that you, you know, never thought to. And it's, it's challenging. The list Smith. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are we ready for picks? Sure. I can go first. <laughs> or I guess we should ask Aditya if there's anything that he wants to mention before. Like, is there anything that you want to cover? Oh, hey, how can people find you on the internet? And is there anything that, how do people, can they give you money somehow? Um, <laughs> various things like that, like your website, that kind of stuff. Before you answer that, sure. before you answer that, what's next after the Recurse Center? Like, what are you working on? And- That's a really big question, Jervon. I veto your question. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, I um I I don't know, and I'm I'm happy not to know. I Recurse Center has been a great sabbatical for me. I love it. If you're thinking of um doing uh, taking time at the Recurse Center, I would highly recommend it. It's great, you know, no matter what your level of experience is as a as a developer. Um, you know, there are people who are just starting out, and people who have you know literally decades of uh of experience, professional experience. And it's, it's a wonderful retreat. And I, you know, when I joined, I, I, I told myself that um, it's a sabbatical for me. So I'm not going to, I'm not even going to think about what's next until, until I get there. And so I very much have not, not thought about that at all and have no answer. And I'm very happy not to have an answer for at least another few weeks. Um, you know, that said, you know, um, very easy to find me on the internet. Um, I, uh, that is, if you can spell my name. Um, <laughs> Uh, my website, my personal website is just my, fir- my full name.net, Aditya Mukherjee, A-D-I-T-Y-A-M-U-K-E-R-J-E-E. Um, my Twitter handle is Chimera Coder, C-H-I-M-E-R-A Coder. Um, and GitHub is, my GitHub profile is the same thing. Um, you know, I, I do some, uh, I, I do, I do work on mostly backend systems and, and with, and with data. If, uh, if you're interested and if you have uh, any needs the above, please you know, feel free to reach out to me and, and I'll see if, uh, see if we can work something out. So yeah, you want to do picks? Yeah, I can go. Um, so this week I went to a conference in Philadelphia called ETE. Uh, it was way better than it was last year. I'm going to pick going to conferences and also ETE if you want to come next year. It's a good conference. Philly is awesome. And then during ETE, I learned about uh, that Talib Kuali and Mostaf were together. And they were called Blackstar. And I listened to some of the music this morning. And it was awesome. So I'm going to pick Blackstar as my music pick. Um, yeah, those are my picks. I don't have much of a pick this week, uh, except, you know, when I am writing tests, I usually like to have themes. Uh, I actually think it's, you know, makes my job a little more fun. And I actually think there is some utility to it. So if I have like an X-Men theme and I see Tony Stark's in the X-Men, I'll realize that, you know, I did something wrong as opposed to, you know, John Doe being in Team Foo. In that vein, I stumbled upon some Bluth Ipsum. So if you're an Arrested Development fan, uh, bluthipsum.com will just be uh, quotes from Arrested Development in Lormid Ipsum format. So I've I've inherited a few code bases from Len. I've worked on code bases. <laughs> and you don't, have, you don't even that. have to do you get blame, right? Yeah, once I see like X-Men or Marvel, I'm like, oh, Len wrote this test. It's funny. You finally admit it. So I'll go. Um... I've been playing with uh, two Ruby libraries. Um, one uh, I think came out a while ago called Contracts.Ruby. Um, another one called Ruby Rubype R U B Y P E. Um, they're they're essentially uh, 
gradual typing for Ruby where you can define what types um, a method in Ruby uh, accepts and returns, and then it will validate those for you. Um, so I don't really have a preference of one or the other, or I don't think you should actually use this in production. I'm just giving it for more of educational purposes. I, I find it pretty interesting to think about. Um, also watched a talk at ETE from Jessica Care. Uh, I guess I'll pick that too. Uh, she gave a talk about contracts in dynamic languages, uh, and she gave the example of using um, the library schema enclosure and what that looks like in practice. Uh, so it was a really good talk. Prismatic schema. Prismatic schema, yeah. And I feel like I'm piggybacking everybody's picks. But Rue, the, the second library that you mentioned is on lobsters today, actually. Yeah, that's where I saw it. So my first pick is the cartoon Pegasus the Flying Horse in honor of Aditya's handle. Um, so if people would like to to watch, obviously a completely mythologically correct, not, probably not at all, um, cartoon about the mythology of Pegasus and the Chimera, uh, you can do that. <laughs> um, I also have a pick that I actually just stumbled upon. Um, that it's a the it's this mentoring repo from Diana Kimball about the distributed mentoring movement, um, and it's the idea is that you have a slash mentoring page on your website, like everyone has a slash about, um, and. I just started started reading the repo after seeing someone else's slash mentoring uh, uh, page, and I think that's interesting. So it's trying to to you know we talk about a dearth of mentoring and trying to to create a distributed mentoring model, and I think that's really cool. So I guess I uh, think of two things. If you're um, I haven't had actually that much time to to read recently because I've been busy with the Curse Center and um, writing a lot of code. But um, one book that is on my bookshelf and I, I, I come back to time and again is a great pick for, for engineers is uh, Dan Ariely's uh, Predictably Rational. Um, it's, it's a book about the side of um, economics, behavioral economics, that uh, is, engineers really do need to think about. Um, you know, just why do people act the ways that they do, even if they are truly irrational, seemingly irrational or illogical? Um, and from a very scientific approach. Um, so it's a, it's a very fascinating read just to come full circle to, you know, things that really got me into engineering to begin with. Um, and on a, I guess, on a musical note, what's, uh, since I'm, I'm very musically driven, um, what's been stuck in my head all day, uh, I was listening to um, Bell X1 this morning. And if you haven't heard them, they're the best Irish band that you, that you, never, knew, that you never knew existed. Um, they're, they're, uh, you should you know, definitely, definitely check them out. And they've been, they're, they're what's the, they've what's been, uh, you know, playing in my head all day. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so show notes are at turing.cool slash 46. Follow us on Twitter at turing cool. And I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. See ya. Thanks. Aditya. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me.